I guess a continuation of another pod that we've done before, which was the, uh, was it the crypto pod, Mike and Steve? It yeah, was it was the pod. crypto pod. And then also I did another one about like entrepreneurialism and. Oh yeah. No, we did one recently about the regionalism, the West coast, East coast, yeah, the West coast, East Midwest. Coast. Yeah. yeah. Which was fun. Um, and I've been saying to you guys, cause you guys now do your own pod, which is available on YouTube. You guys want to intro that pod, plug it. Yeah, it's called the exciting new world of digital finance <laughs> or digital finance, if you want to be fancy. Um, it's just a hobby podcast. Uh, Steve and I talk about uh, financial markets and um, personal finance and stuff like that. But it's it's more therapy than anything else. Yeah, I think it's like uh, we talk to each other to make each other feel better or feel worse, depending on <laughs> <laughs> depending on how things went the last week. So. Yeah. Because you, you mean how things went in terms of like your personal trades, that kind of thing? Yeah, there's def- yeah, definitely that aspect and, and kind of just in general with markets, right? So Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a bonus or a free, but if it's a free, I'm going to plug the Patreon because you could see Mike and Steve go on these like, you know, uh, hour-long uh, deep dives into like, you know, some option trade that they're, that they're cooking up or whatever. I've never traded an option, so I'm like, when I see you guys going off on that, I'm like, you know what? Here's the thing. Uh, clearly, something is going on. Uh, we're reading. We're, we're we seem to be stepping into um, a new world uh, when it comes to uh, or some kind of inflection that's like decades in the making. Like this isn't yeah. the end of some three year period or something. You know, this is. This is something bigger. And I know, and we were talking about this before we hit record, that a lot of things play into it. It's a very complicated situation. We got a war. We got lingering COVID around the world, supply chain. We all know this stuff. We watch the news. But at the heart of it seems to be uh, the end of low interest rate policies, ultra low interest policies in America, I, 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 it seems to like, I'm not, this is just what it feels like to me. Again, I'm not, uh, as market oriented as you guys, but it seems to me like central bank policy around interest rates is what makes this time around different. Am I, am I yeah, right I would, thinking I would, that? Or? I would add one thing to that or, mm-hmm. or maybe like zoom it out one, one more, one more stop which is it, the, the potential inflection point, we don't know the future, right? But the potential inflection point is the end of disinflation, right? Since the peak of both inflation and uh, interest rates, uh, somewhere in the late 70s, early 80s period, the, like the, the Paul Volcker, when Paul Volcker was the head of the Fed, uh, since then, it's basically been a 40-year, 40 40, 41, 42-year one-way ride uh, lower on inflation, lower on interest rates, and higher in asset prices, right? And when I say asset prices, I mean, broadly speaking, all asset prices, stocks, bonds, real estate. Um, oddly enough, not so much gold and commodities, although we can, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that. But basically, like the stuff that most people buy, right, um, have 
have done fantastically well over that time period and in particular in the US. And I think this inflection point that you you refer to that came about really in the post-COVID era is driven by you know, truly unprecedented combination of fiscal and monetary stimulus coming out as a response to COVID, right? Exacerbated by some of the supply chain disruptions that we've seen, exacerbated further by the war, uh, and exacerbated. Uh, you know, you, you guys talk about this on the on the pod fairly often, but potentially further exacerbated by uh, almost like an increase in in labor power, right? Which is another whole other thing, and all that has come together to create an environment where the economy is still, you know, on the numbers is still doing pretty okay. I know there was that, there was that negative 1.6 print and, and, and whatnot. A lot of that was, I think, net, uh, net imports related. That's the um, GDP print? Yeah, the GDP print. But mm-hmm. broadly speaking, over the course of like the last, you know, coming out of COVID, right, economic growth has been strong. Labor market's been strong. Unemployment's only 3.6, right? Wage growth, especially at the lower end, has been really good. Uh, but the real, the real critical point is that inflation has been like nuclear hot, right? And it has, we've seen the highest levels of inflation since, since the Volcker era, since the late 70s, yeah, early it's 80s. the 70s. Right? Yeah. Right. So, That's right. yeah. So in the past 40 years, both interest rates, inflation and labor power has gone down, but yes. you can't go less than zero, which we're at right now. So it's been going what happens? The question is, what happens when all three of those things start going up again? Go in reverse, right? In reverse. And that's that's what's driving this this end of low interest rate policy, right? Right. So the interest. Uh, okay. So I know you guys w- thought we're saying because what I want to do is just pick pick your brain in a way that is more accessible to like newbies, right? To people who aren't following markets daily, which includes me. I think I I, I kind of wanted to do this just because like. I know enough of the jargon and stuff in yeah. terms because I'm like a lawyer in the securities industry. But unlike uh, you, Stephen, unlike you, Mike, well, one, unlike Mike, I don't really trade uh, my own account much. You know, I'm a set it and forget it kind of guy. Very normie when it comes to my investments. Incredibly normie. And unlike Steve, like I don't, I don't take market views or anything like that. I don't know about portfolio theory like i'm literally like just a lawyer that does contracts and regulatory work so i don't but but i know enough of the jargon so i thought you know it would be interesting just to see like how whether we could like provide a, a a knowledge framework for people um to to start making their own informed decisions on what to do with their money not uh, right. obviously not to give financial advice because right, right. everyone's always got a you know caveat that this is not financial advice. This is just us talking about like what we know and what we think is going to happen. And you guys are saying we need to understand interest rates. Both of you seem to be in agreement about that. What um, and Mike, you br- you brought this up first. Why do you think that that is the starting point for understanding the environment, the like right. everything that's going on? Right. So we can just, so just to understand interest rates from a personal perspective, you can just cut the Fed out of the entire discussion. Just pretend it doesn't exist. Right. Because interest rates affect basically every, everything around you, whether you're an individual person or a family or a business. So the price you pay 
unless unless you just have a mountain of cash and just can pay cash for everything, which is not not common. <laughs> um, the price you pay for borrowing money is going to affect how much things cost in pretty much every single context that I just mentioned, right? Yeah, so, and, and even if you are that person with a mountain of money, interest rates are going to be what you get for lending your money out, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, right, right, right. So your savings and you know the, the bonds that you buy and all that stuff right. um, is, is going to be affected by, by interest rates. So it literally is the valve that controls how money flows around the system on every single level because we, we do live in a debt-based monetary system and financial system. Everything basically comes from debt that is issued by some kind of bank. Uh, my my lay understanding of interest rates is this, that I know there's various types of interest rates, like long-term, short-term, or whatever, but let's, all, let's just simplify that down to say there's an interest rate on money, right? Yeah. Let's say it's 5%, uh, which is pretty damn high compared to what it actually is right for mo- for in a lot of contexts. Well, let's say it's 5%. Uh, my understanding of that is to say, if I'm going to borrow money, that the interest rate is telling me that I better be putting that into something like if I'm going to be using that as capital, meaning invested into a business that in turn will make a profit. If the interest rate is 5%, that's a signal to, to everyone that your business better be making more than 5% to justify you going out to borrow money Correct. to yep. capitalize your business. Is that well, a, like a yeah. very like a fair thing to say or that's, that's how I, I think about it? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, I guess, uh, and Steve probably knows more about this than I do, but the, the, the benchmark is what you can get at the risk-free rate, which means you're just buying government bonds. And if you can get 5% doing that, then yeah, everything everything else that you do better be better than that because that's that's what you can just get by sitting on your butt or sitting on your hands. Yeah, I, I think for, um, I mean, the, the, for, for most people, probably the, uh, maybe not most people, but for many people, right? Like the, the typical channel by which they will feel the effect of interest rates is through the mortgage channel. Uh, it's a little bit more common here in Canada, because most people do have floating rate mortgages, right? So when the Bank of Canada just rates ups and down, uh, you see it like next month, right? On your well, okay, technically you don't, but um, because the the payments are fixed and it's just like the the amount of it that goes towards the interest of the principal changes. But because our mortgage terms reset every five years, you will begin to feel the effects of that, right? So if it's essentially like like if interest rates are higher you can afford less house, right? Or you can, or you have to, for the same amount of house, you have to put more of your monthly paycheck towards paying off that interest payment, right? And that just leaves you with less money for spending. If you have less money for spending because your spending is somebody else's income, that means that somebody else is making less income, right? And they have less to spend and so on and so forth. So like the entire economy is sort of like a, in many ways, it's kind of a positive feedback loop, right? Because I spend somebody else has that money now they spend and then somebody else has that money and the whole system can work both you know both both on the upside and on the downside as a sort of positive feedback loop but okay but going back to this signal like so when i think of when i said like signal as in let's say mortgage rates were 5% right yeah that um 
Which they are right now. Which they are, right? Okay, so they're at around 5%. uh, For like what, like a 30-year fix in the United States? 30-year fix is like 5.5. It's fluctuating around around 5.5. For like a conforming? Yeah. Wow. Okay. A, so, so, okay. Well, whatever it is, it, it's 5.5. Like at some, at some other point in history that people would be, would be like, wow, that's very low. But the, the point is that uh, the way I think of it is if you're going to charge me 5.5% on the principal that I borrow, I'm okay with that. So long as the house that I buy is appreciating at a faster rate, because I see that this may be a new way of thinking for people that, that in terms of like, We've been taught to think of our houses as our primary financial investment, um, but I think that generally, in a in in a very low interest rate environment where people are getting thirty year fixed mortgages for under four percent regularly, sometimes under three, under three that lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, you're seeing housing appreciation, the rise in home values, well over that, multiples of that. I think yeah. during COVID, it was reaching something like in one year, uh, was it like 20% uh, uh, appreciation in some markets? Yep. So Some markets were higher even. Yeah. Some markets were even higher. So you're looking at people who are borrowing at 3 4% um, for the principal, but the house that they bought with that is appreciating at 20%. So it makes total sense to just borrow as much as you can. And it's also your salary uh, – mm-hmm contributes to that right so if, if you if you're confident in the industry that you work in and the salary that you're getting um if you're confident that that will rise more than the combined you know whatever you know your uh the capital appreciation or appreciation on your house plus you're going to get a raise every year or you're going to switch jobs and like double your salary every five years that that also goes into it right because you, you're locking in the mortgage while you're in at a fixed rate, while your income is at a, a variable and appreciating rate along yeah. with the house, right? That I mean, like most people don't think about that in those terms. They're like they can't uh, articulate it in like financial terms, but they just know that they're going to get more money basically <laughs> in the future. So mm-hmm. once that once that like uh, assumption goes away, then there's a, then the feedback loop goes in the opposite direction. Yeah, but yeah. I think Keen, like the, the the way you're framing it is essentially correct, right? Like if you have to pay, if you know, if you have to pay five percent interest, or your opportunity cost is five percent, right? And let's say you're a landlord, well, you're not, you know, you're not gonna you're not going to accept like a rental yield that's less than five, right? On the on if you're gonna like buy a place and rent it out, right? Because so, you're not like you're not gonna make money, right? So mm-hmm. now. It's a little bit more complicated to think about it that way because rents, obviously, especially given that we're in a somewhat strong labor market and uh, inflationary environment, rents can go up. Maybe we can think about it more cleanly if it's just like, okay, well, there's like a dividend paying stock here, right? And well, let's say that let's say that stock was paying a five percent dividend, uh, but suddenly interest rates became five percent. Well, why would I take the chance on the stock, right? You just like, stuff your money in the bank and you get five. So then the stock has to compete with that bank deposit at 5%, right? Otherwise, nobody's going to buy it. So what's the only, and assuming that the cash flow stay constant, what's the only way to get that yield higher? The only way to get that yield higher is to push the price of the stock down, right? So instead of being like a $100 stock that pays a $5 dividend, it's got to become like an $80 stock that pays a $5 right, dividend. Right, right. 
right? So that's kind of the the you know you can you can sort of you know and maybe there's like reverse logic way to see you know the the mechanism by which higher interest rates mechanically will take asset prices down. So okay, so what does that mean for uh, like in broad terms uh, uh, as we move away from the the sort of very granular technical understanding of say how whether we should buy div stocks or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um like let, let I, let's talk about the environment that we were we've been in for the past several decades i mean this sounds like it's going back to like the 90s right is this era maybe even further back than at least that. yeah I would, at least i would say early 80s 80. early 80s so we're talking 80, about yeah. an after overall Vol- after volker after volker killed inflation with right. with like twenty percent interest rates yeah, with, or something like that. I mean, he was, interest rates. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So since the sort of uh, uh, lowering of interest rates um, and 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 till now, I mean, the other side of this was not just lowering rates, but accelerating growth, right? And I'm not just talking about asset prices, stock prices, real estate, but ec- actual economic growth. Uh, we were yes. in a pretty high growth environment through the '90s and Right, tapering off a little bit uh, in the 2000s, and then of course coming to a grinding halt in 2008, but still yeah. chugging along for a little bit. But now it seems like we are in for what seems to be an era of either low growth or even a period of 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 decline. I don't know. Like a lot of people are saying, the recession is kind of. Uh, we're, we might already be sort of in it, um, but is that that's that's the other part of this, right? Is the economic growth, the, the GDP growth, yeah, uh, well, trajectory? Yeah. So here, I mean, here's an interesting thing, right? Like, okay, so interest rates in 1980 were super high, 15, 20 percent. Um, every time we ran into a financial problem or some kind of economic slowdown. The, uh, the, um, the, the, the reflex by the monetary authorities, i.e. the, the Fed and, the tre- and combined with the Treasury, was to just lower interest rates even more, right? So, so that's what caused everything to just ratchet down over time. Um, and the worst thing, uh, you know, the worst things, uh, the, the, the worse it was, the, the more they lowered <laughs> interest rates. So now we're, you know, we're coming and what, up. And, okay. But what does that do? Like what, uh, what is the, uh, I know in broad terms, it's meant as monetary stimulus and it's meant to encourage more spending and investment. Yeah. Um, but what does it actually, is, how does the rubber hit the road on that? Like, so I'm, I'm no central bank insider or, or anything like that. But from what I understand, it basically just allows the commercial banks and the investment banks because they have a they have a direct line to fed money it just allows them to make more loans and create more money in the real economy so that people companies investors etc can use those loans to make more investments and and buy assets basically yeah, so the, the, the cleanest, I mean, the most obvious channel, right, uh, especially in the U.S., is that it just creates more housing activity, 
right? Because it, it cranks real estate, uh, it cranks mortgage rates down. And then people are like, oh, okay, well, look, if I can, if, if I can get a mortgage two or 2% cheaper than I could last year, I might as well go and buy a house. Right. And with that, you know, when, when people buy a house, it spurs all sorts of, uh, all sorts of activity, right? Um, Cause you're probably going to go and buy a bunch of new furniture. Uh, you're going to pay like a bunch of real estate agents. Right. So it's just like, it just creates a whole bunch of consumer spending and that kind of ends up jumpstarting the economy to a significant extent on the corporate side. It also, I mean, the, the corporate analogy is that it just makes it cheaper for them to uh, borrow, to invest in something. Right. So like a project that some company wants to do, uh, but they couldn't do it when, when, when interest rates were hired, well, suddenly now they can. And again, that, that project involves a bunch of spending. Right. And that spending just goes kind of just circles around the economy. Right. So, right. so, so why would I ever, as, as the monetary authority, raise interest rates? Why, why wouldn't I just, well, I guess that why is would, the question. Well, I mean, I, yeah, all I think lower them, but why that's would right, I? That's right. That's right. But I, I think they were able to do that. And this is the critical thing, right? They were able to do that because, by and large, inflation had been tamed. So you were never, they were, you know, anytime you ran into a problem on the economy, you didn't have this constraint of, oh, uh, well, we can't lower interest rates because inflation might get out of control. Like that was never really too much of a worry over that 40 year period, right? Because inflation was so contained. So they didn't have that constraint. Anytime you run into any kind of issue, it's just, okay, well, just crank rates down and we'll juice up the housing market. And, and by that, you, you, you mean technical inflation, like CPI inflation, yeah, not yeah, asset yeah. inflation, housing yes, prices, yes, stock that's prices. Right, that's right. That's right. Consumer price inflation. We right? would get rising housing prices and rising stock prices. Right. That was, that was almost like the point. That was almost that's interpreted as good, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and the difference to today is that now you do have that inflation constraint. The technical inflation, the, the CPI stuff. Inflation. That's mm -hmm. right. So things are kind of working in reverse now. If we run, the, the, I think that the, to your earlier point about the risk around growth, uh, you know, one of the major issues is that if we do run into a problem on growth, and and let's you know, and as I said, the economy slows and, and unemployment starts to tick up, but inflation is still not under control. Now that's a problem, right? Because if you cut rates, maybe inflation gets further out of control, but if you don't cut rates. Well, maybe the economy gets weaker. The Fed only has one tool, right? And they have to try and balance two things with that one tool. It wasn't an issue when there was there was it wasn't an issue when one of these constraints was was not really there, right? But now it is, and that's the real risk. Okay, right, so this link this this link between inflation and interest rates is all over the news, but I have a question about this which is like let's we're talking about core inflation I can, I can understand the effect that this has on housing prices because you're knocking a lot of buyers out of the market or and for the ones that remain um you know their spending power is significantly reduced because a lot more of it has to go towards interest right mm -hmm. so i i understand that i understand stock prices to a degree i'm not sure why interest rates necessarily directly affect stock prices the way they do which is a question i want to ask next yeah, the, the, so, the connection so the between re those two. The reason for that is because in order to calculate a stock price based on like classical valuation models, you have to use the risk-free rate as a benchmark. So, so you have to say, okay, I, I think this company makes this much money. It's going to return me this much cash in terms of dividends or or whatever. Um, 
and it better be either better or way better than um, than the risk free rate, right? So if if you can just get three percent, or uh, excuse me, over five percent buying treasuries, then you're not going to invest that in a stock that's growing at four percent in terms of like uh, earnings, right? And then of course the growth component of those earnings goes into the multiple, which reflects into the price of the stock. So basically you're just benchmarking everything against the rate that you would get if you didn't have to do anything and take zero risks. So you're saying the the real metric of a business and how good it is to own it, i.e. own its stock, is not just how well it's doing, but how much better it's doing than the risk-free rate? Correct. Because if it's doing the risk-free rate, then why wouldn't I just go risk-free? Why bother? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why, why bother with any of the business, all this business uh, bullshit? I can just go buy a government bond that gives me the same thing without any worry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. F- fundamentally, that's the trade-off. Mm-hmm. And, and and that does that does seem to manifest in the market, right? Like, uh, I, I mean, th- some stuff that I've heard is that, you know, um, the the real driver of the stock market over the past... I don't know, maybe maybe the past 15 years or something like that, which has been an incredible bull run up until maybe late last year, beginning of this year, is uh, really monetary policy, that, that the valuation of stocks had less to do with inherent growth and performance, though those were not necessarily problems with, with the market, but that it was ultimately driven by uh, constantly lowering interest rates at any time the markets got into trouble we could expect that inter- that that risk free rate would go down and that boosts equity prices because like we said if you're benchmarking the the performance of stocks is how much better their how much better that business underlying business is doing in terms of like uh earnings relative to the risk free rate you're by definition making those businesses perform better just by lowering that bar, right? That interest rate bar. Yeah, exactly. They get extra juice because you're not going to make the same money by doing nothing. You just, it's impossible to get that return. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, so you go out further on the risk spectrum and, and this doesn't just apply to public traded stock, publicly traded stocks. This has a lot, this is a huge input into the venture capital world and private equity world as well. Right. Because you have these giant pools of money whether they're just rich people or like pension plans or whatever that have to earn a return on, on their money. Like they're sitting on billions of dollars and they got to allocate that somewhere. And if they're buying treasuries at 2% with the risk of the actual price of the treasury going down too. So like the total return just doesn't look very good. They're going to put all that stuff into higher risk. I guess you could say longer duration because venture capital and PE is, operates on years similar to a treasury and the opportunity cost is so little right in the sense that if I That's tie right. up my funds into a, into um, a, a, a speculative startup if my risk-free rate the opportunity cost had I just put that into bonds um, treasuries let's say I'm losing so little uh, in I'm I've left so little on the table uh, or off the table in terms of what I could have gotten 
that my horizon for profitability is like almost infinite, right? Like I, yeah, yeah, like I, I don't might really as well how long it takes you to make money. Right. If it takes you ten years to make money, fine, but I don't have really have any other options, right? Like yeah. there's not much yeah. else I could could do with this money at this point, and it's not really costing me anything to be patient with these companies, right? Yeah, and that's a critical because um, like one thing to always keep in mind, right? When we're when we're kind of looking at this stuff is that everything is relative, right? Like you have to put your money somewhere and leaving it in cash is also like, that is also a decision. Uh, it is safe only in the sense that you won't lose sort of nominal dollars. Right. But as, as you know, obviously as we've seen this year, you can, you can sort of slowly burn that money at 8% inflation every year. Right. So in, in, in some sense, there is no, there's no real risk-free portfolio, right? Because you're always taking some kind of risk somewhere. So if you if you look at it in that even term, even if well, your goal is to say, stay in the same place, you've got to move forward a little bit. A little um, bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can even think of it like, uh, look, inflation is eight right now, and you can put your money in the bank at three percent. Well, you're losing five off the bat. You lose five in, in right, and hours. and right. you know, keep in mind, you got to pay taxes on that three too. Yes. Right. Because that, yeah. that's income. All right. So you, you maybe end up with like two, right? Uh, at the end of the day. So, like, kind though, of. For, though, to be fair, for most Americans, I would say this is besides the point because they're going paycheck to paycheck anyway. And that's true. Their savings are a relatively small part of their overall concern. They're, they're more cash flow driven than they are in, than in terms of like having a personal balance sheet. Yeah, and I guess with with it's a, it's a good point you bring up because like with with that then if we think about the avenues by which interest rates and inflation affect you know the paycheck to paycheck person, I don't. I mean, to be fair, I don't think credit cards really no. uh, like credit card rates don't really adjust with. No, they're they're, rate, they're, they're, they're so rates. high. Yeah, yeah they're so like, ridiculously high. Yeah, yeah they're, like, they're either twenty three or twenty four. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh it's no, I've got of... some really discount ones at like sixteen point eight in the U.S. It's really, <laughs> it's really sweet. It's a, it's a sweet deal. Yeah. 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 But then you know, on the flip side of that, for for that kind of person. Wait. Oh, all... sorry. Which, by the way, should be our apps. In my opinion, should be the number one piece of financial advice. If you can just don't don't have any mo- like monthly balances on your credit card. Like. Yeah. Like, never. Don't never, never, never use. Pay off your statement. Never pay off your statement. Yeah, yeah. Th- this yeah. is financial advice. Never use yes. a credit card with a revolving balance. Yeah. Just never, yeah. never just do that. This is the financial advice which yeah. we are comfortable giving. <laughs> and if you're not uh, doing that, then just go use your debit card. Yeah. You know, like just yes. don't, 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 don't run the, don't get charged usury rates on credit card. <laughs> Please, you know. Yeah, well, I think okay, the anyway. bigger, the bigger problem these days is payday loans, which for some insane reason are allowed to exist. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I mean, some of the, some of the effective APRs are like a hundred, 200%. It's, it's absolutely nuts. Yeah. So that's just another, I mean, that, that's, that's a, that's a symptom of the wealth gap, right? Which is also exacerbated by low, super low interest rates because rich people can, you know, do all sorts of stuff with their borrowed money, including bid up asset prices and trade their own account or just you know or just buy houses in mass or take a cheap heloc if they need some extra cash yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah, like if you have assets you can borrow against assets very cheaply yeah yeah right compared to if you have no assets 
Right. Yeah. So speaking of which, so here's a, here's an example. And Steve and I talked about this on our own podcast earlier, but here's an example between a rich person and even a middle, like upper middle class person, right? Rich person is trying to move from California to, I don't know, like Massachusetts or something like that. Um, they don't want to deal with the, the hassle of having a contingent bid on the new house, i.e., oh yeah, I would like this new house, but I want to. I need to sell this old house for uh, first, right? So right. like, give me sixty days on this on this uh, on this bid to make everything work. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you're rich enough, you don't have to deal with that shit mm-hmm. because what you do is just keep your old house for the time being, and then borrow a shitload of money against your stock portfolio mm-hmm. at some super low interest rate mm-hmm. to buy the new house. And then we'll just figure out the rest later. Yeah. Move to oh. the new house, sell, maybe sell your old house in like, I don't know, six months or something. Wait for the best deal that you can get and then just pay everything off. And then you're sitting exactly where you are, uh, where you were, except you're in a new house and you didn't have yeah. to deal with any of the shit that regular people have to a do. Little, a little bridge loan. Yeah, it's a bridge line. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what 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 are how do we sum up this interest rate thing? What is the fundamental lesson, I guess, for if I'm just a person out there, what, which I am, which for for people like us out in the world trying to figure out uh, what to do with our savings, maybe even how to plan, um, you know, our employment situation or our housing situation. The fundamental lesson seems to be that we are now in an environment where interest rates are probably going to be going higher, not lower. Is that right? And that's the that's that's like yeah. a major sea change in well, terms I, I of. Think, I think the good news is um, savings interest rates and bond interest rates that you can actually achieve on on a personal finance level at a, at a time scale that makes sense, like a few years or 10 years or whatever, those interest rates will be going up. Um, however, the, the primary thing you have to worry about is inflation again, which, which now we're dealing with. Yeah. Okay. The other thing I want to make one observation about housing, um, because I've been hearing stuff about panic buyers who are like, Whoa, I better get in on a house now because if interest rates keep going up, I'm going to get priced out because I can't afford these mortgages anymore. I think that people, this is my view. I think people who are panicking buying now are doing the absolute worst thing you could possibly do because to me, interest rates and housing affordability uh, in terms of like cash flow, like how much can I afford? I'm not saying like forward looking, like will the housing market go up or down, but how much can I afford at this point in time? It, it, it's really a function of your cash flow, not interest rates, right? Because yeah, it's a if it's interest a- rates go up. Uh, I think over the long run, or in a medium term, housing price housing prices will have to go down to meet them at where they're able to afford. Right. Right. Like so so, so there is there's, an yeah. equilibrium between there or, a, or like a continuous balancing between sticker price and interest rates. Mm-hmm. And the affordability is what matters. Um, I, yeah, obviously, panic buying is ne- <laughs> panic. Anything is never a good uh, choice in in finance. Um, but I, I will say though that look, if you can, if you have a down payment saved and you can find a house that you like and you can afford it, there are two outcomes 
after you buy the house, right? Interest rates go up, in which case, okay, your affordability will probably stay the same. If you can afford it, the price might go down, but it'll probably go up eventually over the long run. Um, and the other option or the other outcome would be, okay, interest rates drop and then your house price goes up because of the, uh, inverse effect of price and interest. And then you can refinance at a future date. So it's, it's not like you're doomed if you buy a house as long as you can afford it from, from a monthly payment point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in the U S like most people are in fixed rate and you can always, well, it's, it's fixed up but you can't move if, if rates go lower you can always refi lower yeah right yeah so it's kind of it's like fixed but kind of asymmetric in a sense yeah i would say that the, the doomsday scenario is very rare it only really happens to people who just lever the shit out of their own money and just do something that they can't actually afford cannot actually afford yeah like if they get a resetting loan you can get fucked on that yeah like on, on the yeah. adjustable rate stuff and, and whatnot yeah. like you're yeah. you're you're, you're you're taking your chances. I'm guessing that some of the inventory rises that we're seeing now, which is like very surprising because, right, like the story in the US has been no inventory, no inventory. I suspect that there might be some buyers who are like facing a reset and want to get out. That that's that's on, what I on the housing market. A reset on their inter- on their interest. Oh. Yeah. And and I wonder if that's starting to spur some sales from owners who are like, yeah. So I know a lot of spec, uh, speculative and fix and flipper types do arms and adjustable rate mortgages and also interest only mortgages with, which is a thing for, uh, for de- quote unquote developers, which, and also hard money loans, which is, which like is basically loan. like a bridge loan product in it, you know? Yeah, way, exactly. Right. Yeah. right exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah. If, I mean, if, if, it, if, if rates go up and the market takes a dip, those people, those people are going to be, um, kind hosed. of in a, in a pickle. They're going to get hosed. But, yeah. But, but the, the, so the, the difference between today and 2008 though, is back in 2008, this was like a mass market product. And today it's more of a niche. Yeah. It's, kind it's of, more specialty. I think, I think yeah, the U S yeah. mortgage market has to a fairly significant extent cleaned up a bit. Clean its act up on the lending. Yeah. 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 Most, yeah. most yeah. people can afford the house that they're in. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so lesson number one, I'm, I'm getting that I, that I kind of wrote out for myself earlier was I'm not a homeowner. I hope to own a home at some point. I don't know where or what, but you know, I, I do want to own a home, but I am certainly not worried about rising mortgage rates. This is not my concern because, uh, I can sit on the sidelines and, you know, just build up cash in the meantime. And with rising interest rates, I expect there to be uh, some change in housing prices to meet that uh, increase in financing cost. So it's like, okay, if mortgage rates as a, as a potential buyer on the sideline, I'm like, okay, mortgage rates go up. I expect prices to go down. Good for me because in the meantime, that means just less money that I have to borrow and more time for me to uh, build up cash as I wait for the market to sort of clear to, to clear itself. Is yeah, that I, fair? I, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that, that's probably like if you're in essentially, you know, especially for those who are in, uh, let's say you're in an industry where right now it's pretty easy to hop across the street and get like a 20% raise or something, right? Like, and, and you're 
not already in the real estate market, you're not already leveraged um, in that sense, then it's, it's from a relative standpoint, it's a pretty strong position to be in, right? Because you're just going to, okay, you're going to go get some fat raise. Uh, meanwhile, you're going to build up cash and then you're going to just wait for the real estate market to come off 15, 20%. Yes, you'll pay a higher rate, fine, but I think net-net, you're probably better off, right? My main risk is rent increases, right? The main, yeah, that's right. main risk that's is right. like, well, you know, I'm going to get hit by uh, a massive rent increase this year, which is out of my control. I, I personally am not because I, I have rent stable, yeah, stabilization, yeah. but a lot of people are not protected. Most renters in America are not protected, yeah, and that is one really dangerous thing, I yes. think, is going to be... Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, if we, if we think back to you know, the, the analogy that people are worried about here is like the seventies again. Right. Um, the, the, the economic situation in the seventies was kind of not, not great. Like it wasn't, it wasn't horrible. Like the 1930s or the depression or anything like that, but there were, there was kind of like this boom bust kind of thing going on and unemployment did unemployment wasn't 3.6 for the whole decade. Right, like people, people were, um, people were feeling the pinch both from a I can't make any money and everything costs a fortune perspective, right? Like both from a, from both from the employment perspective as well as from inflation. So I mean, that's kind of the the yeah, and, that's kind of a perfect uh, storm in a lot of situations, right? Yeah, and also the '60s and the '70s were they had demographic tailwinds, which which means um, prices like the economy was just expanding in general because there were more people. Uh, and th- and this is essentially the baby boomer generation coming into age, so they were all getting jobs. And you know, like during the post-war, like not not post-war, but post-post-war era, money started getting a little easier. Um, there were you know plenty of plenty of things like the GI Bill and um, getting off the gold standard, which loosened up monetary policy tremendously in 1971. That just helped drive all this stuff. So right now it, it might be a mix of um, all the stuff you mentioned earlier, like supply chains and tightening interest rates and blah, 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 and all that stuff. But um, it, it doesn't like it. We're facing a lot of the ch- same challenges as the seventies in terms of money goes, but we're, we don't have a lot. Yeah, we of don't the, have the exact same macro back. Yeah. We, right. we don't that, that's, that, that's the other very important thing, right? There's a timeline and a history to, this is all real world. This is just a way of modeling the real world. This yeah. isn't, we're not just tinkering with variables in a state machine here. Right. Um, yeah. This is not a spreadsheet. It's re- it's real. It's real. Life, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> one, one thing I've always thought about wondered is like, is, is there just like sort of a slowdown in terms of, well, yeah, there's the demographic tailwinds that you're talking about. We were in like a rapidly expanding um, population and a younger population. Yeah. Whereas now we're kind of not growing as fast and we're getting older. Uh, and then also I think, I feel like, that a lot of that a lot of the media hype around this i mean in the extreme i would call it the 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 belief in the technological singularity that that we are that we are hitting strides in techno technological innovation that are so fast that you know mm-hmm. we're we're almost not going to be able to handle it but I don't know, man. I, I wonder if that's actually a complete fabrication and lie to an extent where... Well, 
Well, if, okay. So mm-hmm. this brings us into one of the big debates that's going on today, right? Like deflation okay. versus inflation. Technology is obviously deflationary. Everything gets cheaper due to cool technology and automation. But the problem is the the thing that the thing that drives consumption in the real physical world is is commodities, which is just not. It's just different. <laughs> it's it's. Commodities are not like software where software has zero marginal cost of reproduction, i.e., you know, the, the next thing you download on your phone doesn't actually cost anything except for the uh, the usage of the networks, both wireless and wired that was that were put basically, in. Basically, basically zero. I mean, yeah, it's like it's like zero. Right. Mm-hmm. All that money was already spent 20, 30 years ago. And the pricing of that stuff has nothing to do with the transmission cost. Yeah, they just, they just, that's right. It's 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 everything to do with sort of like monopoly power. Yeah, they just set a price and you either pay it or you don't. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but that's like, we're talking about, okay, buying a ringtone or a game or a app or whatever, or businesses spending on software as a a service kind of thing. Yeah. I'm talking about more like, actual social societal innovation where like let's go from 1978 which happens to be where i was born to 2000 which i think was sort of like kind of an economic peak looking back i think for the united mm-hmm. states in a certain way yeah and then take the same period of time 22 years separating those two years go forward which is 2000 until now my experience my gut tells me that we traversed a lot more temporal ground in terms of innovation between 1978 and 2000 than we did from 2000 to 2022. I would say that by 2000, if you took someone from 2000 and, and, and fast like teleported them till now, they would not be particularly impressed. Yeah. Yeah, It would just look like, like a, like a mildly cooler version of the same world. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like Everything got complex. smaller and like higher you resolution. Have flat screens. It's flat screens and and smaller phones. Right. Yeah. So there's there's a uh, a pretty common, not common, but there's a theory out there that um, progress is actually slowing down, despite all of the cool the hype. new, yeah, all the cool new handheld shit we have. Right. So if you you know like the the common analogy is the airline or the aerospace industry. Right. When did when did Wright brothers do their first flight? Like nineteen like around World War One era, right? Before World War One. Yeah. Anyway. Early nineteen so, hundreds, I think. Like nineteen. Yeah, so they yeah, so they went from let's say nineteen hundred mm-hmm. to nineteen sixty nine when got they got the on the moon. And then what has happened since? Not not much. So so basically if you t- if you shift your twenty year window from uh now till 2000 okay we have some kind of marginal difference from 2000 to 1980 we have a bigger marginal difference 80 to 60 way bigger marginal difference 60 to 40 huge 40 to 20 massive 20 to 0 or uh, 1900 just incalculable right yeah so that, it yeah. basically the, the 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 first derivative of change is slowing down and possibly going negative well i mean it certainly has in the last you know, 22 years, right? Like you, you think about like when, like the airliner analogy, when was the Boeing 747 designed? 1969. Yeah. Right. But if you, if you just slap yourself into a 747 today, it's like, I don't know. It just looks like a, it's like a very familiar thing. Okay. Right? Let's it's, see. It's let's, let's see if we can take this 
uh, idea, which is that maybe we're actually in an era of declining or slowing progress uh, rather than I think the sort of uh, hype, the, the, the hype that we get from media, which is that we're in this out of control innovation period where the main thing that we got to worry about is too much innovation. Um, can we distill any sort of like practical way of thinking in terms of like what we're going to do? Because my first thought it, when, when I am confronted with that is that I think a lot of the financial anxiety, personal financial anxiety that we get is uh, FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, that we are not going to be, we're, you know, we're not going to catch Bitcoin in time to be <laughs> the rich people of the new era. We're not going to catch, you know, the, uh, I don't know what stock blew up, uh, the ARC, you yeah. know, the ARC ETF. Like we're not going to be able to ride the ARC ETF rocket to the moon base that we're all going to be living in in 20 years. Uh, that I think was hyping a lot of the market insanity that we were getting during COVID was FOMO. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe young and dumb people who were being fed unreal levels of hype by the likes of Matt Damon about fortune favors the brave. And, you know, in, in, in 15 years when you're an adult, you know, you're going to be spending crypto on the moon base. Right. <laughs> I think the reality is, uh, for me as an older man is like, I'm not so much worried about um, not having enough crypto credits on the moon when I'm 60. <laughs> right. I do not care so much personally about making a, a load of money off my investments first. Cause my nut is not that big anyway. I've, I'm, I, you know, my savings is like a relatively normy amount of savings. So, I mean, for me to get rich off my thing, I got to really get degenerate, which maybe you guys are trying to do. I don't know, <laughs> but, you know, my main, I guess what I'm trying but to say is my main, main concern overarching... is like food and energy and gas and, and that yes, sort of stuff. That's true. Like that, yeah. Well, there it is, right? Yeah. Food yeah. and energy and gas. Food, energy, so... gas, right. My goal in investing is to preserve my wealth, not to well, necessarily... Right. I would like to grow yes. it, but my main concern is protecting it and not and just leaving it in cash is not protecting it. That is, uh, so, that is you know, leaving right. so, it on the so shelf. Part of Part of the transition to, I think, a higher interest rate environment is the cost of money is going up, right? Just by definition, that's what it means. So the thing that the, the, the thing cheap money is no longer a thing. So money is worth more. And I think, you know, you guys can uh, disagree with this, but I think real assets, which is, you know, this is not an uncommon point of view but real assets and stocks that stocks and and other investments that have to do with real assets will go up in value just because you mean physical assets like physical assets things that yeah, that correct. actually have scarcity correct in a, in a physical material sense in a physical material sense so i mean this is why people clamor so hard and panic buy houses right because they know that look if the shit hits the fan entirely, I will at least have my house. And if, if it's an actual SF uh, single family home, maybe I'll be able to buy uh, or uh, grow, grow food for myself. Right. So, so a lot of this stuff comes back into focus when money is extremely uh, expensive 
and far off things like long duration technology, <laughs> non-profitable companies aren't so real anymore. And real stuff like um, houses and energy and like raw commodities start to start to have value again. Yeah, I, I'd like to bring back, up this. And especially in the backdrop of like global supply chain disruptions and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I like that you bring up this, this idea of real assets. Uh, the um, the flip side of which being like financialized assets. Or you can, you can say nominal assets, you can say financialized assets. Uh, but, it, it, you know, roughly speaking, the argument works both ways. Like the one nuance I would add to it is the 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 returns that you're going to experience on any given asset, right? Like it kind of doesn't matter what, what the asset is, but on any given asset is a function of what markets are pricing for that asset relative to what actually transpires in the economy and in, in broadly, more broadly in, uh, in financial markets. Right. So uh, I don't know what's an example. Like it, it's kind of like the older days that a good company is not necessarily a good investment if it's priced too high. Right. Or similarly speaking, um, we could be in an inflationary environment, but if oil is you know, like $700 a barrel to, to take some crazy example, maybe that's not a good buy because the economy can't survive at that level. And then demand is just going to get crushed. Right. And it's going to come back down to like a more um, kind of like a more kind of like a more reasonable level. Now, the the what I would say, though, is that if you if you look at the last, certainly the last 10 years, but even more so, you, know, you can extend this all the way back to the early 80s. What have been the habitual lessons that investors and people have learned from participating in those markets, right? Because keep in mind, we haven't seen a truly inflationary environment for most people's careers, right? Like your average career is not that long. We haven't seen true inflation since the late 70s or early 80s. That was 40 years ago. Right. Uh, and the lessons that we have learned, and in particular in the last 10 years as the millennials have come of age, is that you just buy every dip on stocks and you buy tech stocks and you buy American equities, which are basically like you know, 25 percent of the S&P is tech and another 20 ish percent is something called like the way the categorizes is called communication services. Uh, Facebook and Google are in communication services. So you kind of like add those all up and you can say, well, you, even, even in that environment, even bonds appreciate. Yeah. Uh, even bonds appreciate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But for most people, cause you're probably not trading bond futures on leverage. Like the, 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 the easy thing to do is to buy, is to buy NASDAQ and you buy every dip on NASDAQ. Right. And that worked when rates were going down because these are long duration, heavily financialized assets. And that worked in a world where commodities took took a like a massive backseat like way to the back of the bus uh compared to tech right if that flips around i think because those lessons have been learned for so long and they're so ingrained and i don't think most people have really changed their kind of like mental model of oh of course you should do this or of course you should do that right like i still hear a lot of people saying oh don't worry nasdaq's going to come back Oh, I'm just waiting to buy the dip on on QQQ, right? They're still kind of in that, what I think is a denial phase, right? And until that general narrative changes, uh, sorry, maybe I'll say it this way, right? At what point is that general narrative going to change? And at what point is the FOMO, the new FOMO going to be, oh, I don't have enough Exxon, 
right? Like, I don't think that's part of the 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 mainstream zeitgeist for people just yet, right? Like, you, I think, you think lot- there's still because I've been thinking about buying into uh, uh, like an XLE or, or or something like that. Is that the energy ETF? Yeah, that's the energy it's, ETF. It's, it's been bonkers it's in terms bonkers. of its yes, performance. Absolutely, but absolutely. is that that's still? You think that's still in its infancy uh, in terms of? Or is that I mean, maybe a little bit too much exuberance, you know, here, out the gate the, that it's going to slow down and hit a stride? Here's, here's the thing: this stuff is so tied into the political situation right now that it's tough to say. But I, I think my thesis, and and maybe Steve's too, is that they are the the, the administration and subsequent administrations are going to do so much stuff to drive the price of tra- traditional energy higher. That is worth the risk for me to invest in this stuff, right? It's it's not like I don't like electric cars, but like or or solar panels or whatever. But the amount of diesel and gasoline and oil required to make an electric car like a, a Tesla. Oh yeah, of course. The, I mean, the amount of like petrol that yeah. uh, oil that goes into the inputs of those cars, and even yeah, the energy mind-blowing. that you're copper, charging it with, the amount of is, copper that you need. Dude, I mean, it's a fantasy to think that like, like anyone, Tesla represents a move who, to a yeah, post-oil world. Anyone who thinks that EVs are clean should just look up what a lithium strip mine looks like. Okay, and you know, it's it's mind-blowing how incredibly disruptive a lithium strip mine is to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and all of these inputs, all of these, yeah, all of these inputs re- rely on the old way of thinking or the old way of, uh, excuse me, um, old way of delivering energy. And it's like, okay, yes, you can say that we want to adopt a, more electric cars and they're great. And I, and I love them too. I just, you know, I just got an EV charger installed in, in my place, but you can't actually get there without incredible amounts of traditional carbon-based energy. My my question though is whether uh, there's too there's a bit of excess exuberance about this shift back towards thinking about oil and oil security, and 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 the stock price surge in energy companies, or is that do you think just um, the the beginnings of a of of like a major change in that, that well, you, maybe that maybe we do want to own some it, energy. I mean, I think stocks. like the the way that the economy goes is always going to be uncertain, and it has come a long way, right? If we do, you know, okay. So here's here's one of the major uh, differences between today and the 1970s. We have way more debt today, and that means right. that every Unit increase, I mean, in corporate rates. debt, personal debt, government debt, debt acro- all of it. yeah, all of it, all of the like, above. sort of like mm-hmm. full stack, economy wide debt, which means that every every percent increase in interest rates is actually, uh, relatively speaking, more burdensome, right? So in the past, like in in the seventies, uh, they were able to take rates all the way up to eighteen percent. Of course, it it did destroy the economy, right? Um, but maybe, you know, maybe, maybe seven is the new 18. I don't know. I'm just kind of making up numbers, right? Just given the debt load that we, that we have to deal with right now. If that, that is one argument that you could, you could cite among many to say, well, this time we're not going to be able to, you know, get that kind of inflationary impulse because the economy is just not able to sustain it, right? The economy will completely collapse and inflation will come off, uh, and, and we won't be able to get that. So. I'm saying like, yes, the, the, the way that the economic picture is going to work out 
is always going to be unknown and we don't know for sure how that's going to play out. like just going back to the energy thing but what my point about like the, the whole the whole story about like you you learned the lesson of just buy nasdaq over the last 10 years is that i don't think energy is going to be at risk i don't think it's at risk from a sentiment perspective yet it is always going to be at risk from a from a sort of environment uh, economic environment perspective but i think until your average uh silicon valley millennial is putting their whole putting putting you know 20 percent of their paycheck into exxon mobile right i don't think we're we're at that point in the zeitgeist nothing like I that. i see it's yeah. just not it's, it, it's not it, a it thing. has not taken over the the public the, the consciousness yet for their, that's right it's not there that yet. the that the shift in uh capital allocation back toward fossil fuels yes is is yeah. not necessarily right. um just a a, a splash in uh, of exuberance uh, in not, response to the war. I mean, it could be. Uh, I don't know, but uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you look at um, where, look, if you, if you look at the historical charts of all the energy, the the entire energy sector, like this stuff was way higher ten years ago, right? But then in twenty fourteen yeah. and fifteen, um, I think Steve is more familiar with act, how this actually unfolded, but. They the the energy sector put a ton of capex, which is just investment, just like taking their cash and sticking it in the ground. They they spent a ton of it on developing the shale energy and natural gas energy and all that stuff. Oh, and by the way, Europe was divesting from energy and relying on Russia, transferring the reliance to Russia at this point as well. And like the whole the the, the entire bottom just fell out of it, right? Yeah. So so all of those people were burned then and now they're beginning to get burned wait, now. Wait, wait, what, what happened that the bottom fell out of that? So, I mean, the price of oil, I think, went from something like $110 a barrel down to maybe 30 over the span of like only six Be- or eight months. Because of COVID? No, no, no. This was in no. 2014. This was purely... Oh, 2014. This okay. was like shale. And I think there's probably like a slowdown in Europe at the time or something like that. Oh, really I see. It was okay. just the amount of money and capex that went into shale and shale comes online relatively quickly right so, so we had overproduction you think just, yeah. Just, yeah yeah i mean it was one of these things where commodity cycles sometimes sow the seeds of their own demise because high prices just attracts more investment and more production right so the, you have you kind of have that cycle uh but now like the situation is a bit different now because all these um all these energy company ceos like if you if you became an energy company ceo during the dark days you were probably put there because you are a you're a miser right like you, yeah, you're, you're, like, you're, you're not mm-hmm. like a big spender on capex you're like okay i'm mm-hmm. going to return money i'm going to yeah. operate this thing tight and return money to shareholders mm-hmm. right that and right now they'll be like okay well we're just going to keep doing that life is good right uh right. secondly and- the amount of sort of like esg and environmental costs of doing a new oil field or doing you know, like underwater drilling right or doing a new refinery just makes it just, like, that why? just kept piling up because yeah. there was a political. That's right. There was That's political right. favor for that. That's and right. And I guess that will will be tested yeah. when you're looking at six, seven dollars at uh, at the pump. And right, I think like, you are right. I mean, it's, we're it's already in California. We're at seven plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, like just just driving around. It's fucking and, insane. Yeah, and and <laughs> the and the and the uh, you know the the ripoff stations and like the way out of the way stations, middle of nowhere stations. This shit's at nine dollars. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. It's it's absolutely yeah. nuts. And and so the energy industry, they did 
kind of an own goal uh, back in 2014 because remember they were coming off um, super high gas prices from before. Um, so they thought, you know, oh, maybe that'll happen again, but um, they just overinvested and overproduced and they're definitely not going to make that mistake again. Yeah. I, I think, what- I think this is, this is tied into what we were talking about earlier, which is uh, there having been um, and, and still continues to be, I think a lot of, hype around technology and innovation where I personally feel like green tech was oversold to an extent. Um, oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. definitely. And, and I think that we're still waiting for some, we need to still be investing, I think in moonshot type stuff. I don't know if like installing solar panels on our houses is necessarily going to get us there. I think we probably still need to do some serious moonshot stuff like fusion or whatever to, to well, really there's, get there's, somewhere. I don't know. There's also just nuclear, which, you know, has had, had, had also fallen out of favor and the anti-nuclear people are very strong politically. So that just yeah. shuts off a quarter. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's only so many ways you can produce energy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that just shuts off a quarter of the potential right there. Mm-hmm. And that obviously has inflationary effects on on the the other seven. Which is unfortunate because I heard that there really is um, actually a lot of innovation that has gone on in terms of um, traditional fission, and uh, the new ones would be a lot smaller and safer uh, than than the ones that they used to build See, back in the seventies and stuff. I don't know if that's true. That's that's the kind of stuff that could be really game changing, but you kind of never hear about it, right? Like in the, in the public consciousness, it's all just like, oh, Facebook is going to do augmented reality, you know? That's kind of like, well, yeah. Or you or you hear or you hear stuff like Tesla installed solar panels on its roof, and yeah, think that like, if yeah, we if we have like, enough cool, of those stories, it'll add up to something major. Yeah. But I don't think there's a single country on Earth that has really taken wind and solar into to be like a truly significant factor in its energy makeup in a way that would actually start reversing the carbon uh, trends, right? I, yeah, like even Germany really doesn't probably certainly more. not like a major country, right? Like maybe some some niche case. Yeah, like, but like a major economy. Like yeah. even, I think Germany's a leader here and it's not, it's really not enough, is it? Um, well, I mean, by de- yeah, I mean, they so Germany shut down all their nuclear, which is crazy, but they yeah. did it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, then they just burned shifted coal, right? all of their reliance onto Russia, which... <sighs> You know, it's just part of the reason why Putin decided to invade Ukraine because he's like, he's okay, got him, he's got him by the balls. Yeah, he's got him by the balls. It's like, it's like, it's not that complicated, right? But yeah. it's, it's just yeah. on, on the political aspect of that, like, I, I, I sort of uh, a friend of, uh, well, a friend of my wife's, he's uh, from Germany. Uh, he said, uh, well, the nuclear plants, like, oh, yeah, we don't have any nuclear plants. They're just slightly over the border over there in France. Right. Well, then that's why okay, they that's buy all their, yeah. yeah, they they just buy. That's why they buy all their uh, their energy. But they right. still shut them down in Germany, they, right? Yeah. Well, I, I guess his point was that they just moved the they just moved them over the border, basically. Right. Uh, literally, literally, like kind of right there. But it gives you a, a sort of a sense of the um, the political imperatives in a lot of these things. Yeah. Okay. So we're. I, you know, we should, maybe we should do like, well, you guys already do a pod on this, uh, but I kind of want to, there, there's a lot to this. Uh, I almost think we should do like a, you know, like a small series or something, 
but we're in over an hour. I want to maybe like move to like a final topic if you guys have the time. But I think yeah, I want to talk got, about inflation itself, right? Inflation yeah. itself. Um, the discussion around inflation in the early part uh, when we started seeing spikes was, uh, is this, quote, transitory inflation? Uh, or was this some deeper, was this actual or something actual inflation. Now, this is what I want to ask. First, I had never heard the term transitory inflation before. It seemed to be something that one of the Fed uh, governors had uh, coined mm-hmm. and become yeah. a sort of talking point, um, a soundbite that allowed the, the the government to hand wave away some pretty eye-opening uh, inflation prints. Um, and to tell the markets and specifically really the markets that they were, you know, to not worry too much about this, that the Fed wasn't necessarily going to be reacting to this print because this is a uh, transitory, meaning by next month, uh, I think the supply chain thing will start to get better and we'll see a, a lower print. And yeah, well, the word transitory is a portmanteau of transient and temporary. <laughs> so right. they just made that shit up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's not even a real word, is it? That's a real word. Transitory. Okay. No, no uh, that's a real word. That's a real word. Is it transitory? Okay. Yeah. I well, here's my question. My question is this. Uh, I'd never heard of transitory inflation before, but it got me thinking, well, if it if it isn't transitory inflation, which now a lot of the people a lot of the transitory people have now come over to the Larry Summer side and said, no, this is actual inflation. Well, well, what the fuck is actual inflation? Because uh I understand. The thing is, transitory inflation is easy to understand. Shit in the back back of the house got fucked up. You know, we're at the the uh, the shelves fell over. The 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 um, the you know one of the the cooks caught on fire. Uh, you know, whatever. Like uh, <laughs> we're you gonna know, fix it. Happened. We're gonna fix it. The, oven, the, guy's the oven exploded. Yeah. So your dishes. We're not going to be coming out with a lot of dishes tonight, okay? Because the back of the house got fucked up. But we're gonna fix it, and by next week. Things are going to get better. That's transitory inflation in the minds of, I think, how they were describing it. And so that would have an effect on supply in the short term. Therefore, those who really wanted to eat dinner that night, you're going to have to pay a lot more because there's only so many dishes that we can only make so many dishes tonight. Very Mm. simple, right? Okay, so what is real inflation? What If it's not transitory, what is it? That's the end of part one of this episode. We did another uh, hour or so uh, just continuing to talk about finance, and that'll be available on our Patreon feed. Uh, if you want to subscribe and you haven't, just go to patreon.com slash planning